starting back to school and so forth, and um, a significant, important time of year. As we mentioned to you this weekend and last week, we're uh, going to be teaching on something very, very specific uh, tonight. Before we do, there's a couple verses of Scripture I want to read for you and uh, in your hearing. And the first one is in Hebrews chapter number 5, and uh, chapter number 5. And then we're going to focus on a passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. Uh, but Hebrews chapter number 5, <clears throat> in verse number 12, it says, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become as such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. Everybody say strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. Everybody say the word of righteousness. Understanding the word of righteousness. The Bible says when you're, uh, he uses the phraseology here, using milk as someone who is uh, still a babe. It says for he is a babe. Everybody understands that babies drink milk. Uh, it's not till you get older and have teeth that you start to eat meat. Everybody understand that. And it's not because babies wouldn't like the taste of meat. It's just that it can harm them or choke them uh, because uh, um, uh, it, it's not chewed up yet. Uh, they're not able to chew it up. Uh, but 14, uh, but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Verse chapter 6 says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Amen. I read that passage of Scripture uh, before you to let you know, just to kind of give you a, a foundation that tonight's lesson is not milk, it's meat. It's for those that uh, are uh, wanting to grow beyond the foundation of uh, understanding the foundation of the Word of God and uh, go on unto perfection. Amen. And so uh, uh, there are uh, milk that's for babes and there's meat for those that are growing up and becoming more mature and more skillful in the word of the Lord. So tonight's lesson is going to be like college level. Everybody got that? It's going to be uh, uh, getting deep into the word of God and going verse by verse on a specific subject that uh, uh, is addressed in the word of God by the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. If you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 and we'll spend all of our time tonight looking at this passage of scripture. Verses 1 through 16. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. It says, Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. The Apostle Paul says this, Follow me because I'm following Jesus Christ. Verse 2, Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you... Uh, know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Verse 4, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and the glory of God. Man's created in the image of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Having this cause, ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, 
neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Now, focus here in verse 13. It says, Judge in yourself. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us, Lord God, to understand what your word is speaking to us, Lord Jesus, and obtain insight, Lord God, into your word tonight. We ask this in your precious name, Lord God, open to us understanding to see what you're speaking to uh, the church through the apostle in this passage of scripture. We pray in the name of the Lord and everybody said, amen. Hallelujah. And you may be seated. We're going to... uh, talk tonight uh, about the hair issue. As mentioned in Scripture, we're going to uh, teach on this principle. Now, last week we talked about the idea of holiness unto the Lord. We said that holiness, the word holy, means separated unto God. It's not just separated from something, but separated unto God's purpose. And we're not separated to make other people look unholy, but we are going back to man's original state of communion with God as we live holy lives. One thing that's important to understand is that uh, uh, God, uh, God's creation was perfect. He said it was very good. Uh, but because of sin, there has been a moving away from God's uh, perfection of creation and with regeneration or redemption or becoming a new creature in Christ Jesus, it's a coming back. It's a process of moving back to the original state that God had for us. And uh, so in this passage of Scripture that we just read, three different times the Apostle Paul mentioned, I'm sorry, three times in these 16 verses, he refers to the order of creation. Uh, And uh, because we were created to have fellowship with God in holiness and salvation is is a process. And uh, although we were justified at the time of our initial experience with God, salvation uh, is to begin to produce changes in us. And uh, this is called sanctification, the process of becoming what Jesus wants us to be. We are saved from the penalty of sin when we're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. But then when we allow God to lead us back into the state of original creation, back into the state of uh, holy living, He performs this work of sanctification which saves us from the power of sin. Justification saves us from the penalty. Sanctification saves us from the power of sin. So the Bible teaches, as we said before, that we are not saved by good works, but we are saved unto good works. We're not saved by the things that we do, but because we're saved, we do different things. We do things that godly people do. Holiness is not a means of salvation, but it is always the result of salvation. God begins to do a work of transformation in us. And while many of these holiness issues are not salvation issues, they are issues of Christian maturity. Everybody say maturity. Growing up. Uh, That is why sometimes uh, these teachings are not, you may say, well, why is it not mentioned five or six times in different places in the Bible? The reason is God expects a mature believer to look for truth. And when he says it once, just like an older kid, with a little kid, you've got to say it five or six times. With an older child, a child that's mature or a person that's maturing, you tell them once and they get the principle and they get the issue. And uh, so... The preeminence, of course, or the most important thing is internal holiness, but it does not negate the place of external holiness or holiness that shows in our lifestyle that begins to show up and people can see it. Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees was, you clean 
the outside of the cup so everybody can be impressed, but you leave the inside dirty. But the proper response is not just to say, okay, we left the inside dirty and the outside was uh, was changed or cleansed, so let's cleanse the inside and leave the outside unchanged. That's not the correct principle. The correct principle is, yeah, what's on the outside, what people can see is important, but what's more important is what's on the inside. Amen? Praise the Lord. So this book of Corinthians, I want to talk about the church in Corinth was founded by the Apostle Paul uh, as he labored there for 18 months. And after Paul departed from Corinth, there were some disorders that happened in the church. And he made three different visits there to kind of straighten out the problems. Anybody ever wondered why there's problems in the church? Why is there ever problems in the church? Because there's people in the church. Amen. And, and uh, people are pitiful. People create problems. Amen. And we're all people. Amen. I remember as a school teacher, I, I taught public school, and I said one time uh, to someone, I said, man, this would be a really cool job if it wasn't for the students I had to deal with. Then I realized what I was saying. <laughs> but uh, uh, So there were problems that broke out, and, and Paul came back to deal with those. And, and one thing you have to understand about the book of Corinthians, it was written to a church in a city called, anybody know? Corinth, yeah. A city of Corinth, and Corinth was known as a very, very sinful city. In fact, if you wanted to uh, slander someone or use a, a word that would make them feel bad, you would back in those days you would call them a Corinthian, which simply meant someone who was sexually immoral. So God, but God wanted a church right in the middle of Corinth. Amen. How many believe God wants a light wherever it's dark? Wherever sin is, wherever uh, despair is, God wants a light right there in the middle of the darkness. And so the Corinthian Christians, what had happened is they had allowed the sins of the city or the sins that were in them before they were saved to begin to creep inside the church. And uh, it was believers that began to hinder the work of God. And uh, when you study the entire uh, book of uh, Corinthians there, of 1 Corinthians, you realize that the main problem of the Corinthian church was that its self-centered members constantly tried to exercise their personal freedom without regard to the needs of other members in the body or trying to live to the glory of God. They were living according to their personal freedom rather than trying to give glory to God and uh, have regard for the needs of others. So in 1 Corinthians, which we read from chapter 11, Paul deals with several things first. He deals with envy. He deals with strife. He deals with divisions in the church in the first three chapters. He talks about envy, strife, and divisions. And then uh, in chapter 4, he deals with judgmental attitudes, especially towards people that are leading the body of Christ. And then in chapter 5, he, he uh, rebukes those who have tolerance for sin, those that allow sin within the church or sin within their own life more specifically. And then in chapter 6, he deals with two things. He deals uh, with uh, reproving, reproving those that go to court against brethren, that take their brothers in Christ to a, before a lawyer to get a judgment. But he also uh, warns against moral impurity. In chapter 6, he comes out real strong against the dangers of moral impurity, uh, sexual sin in the church. And it was only after dealing with these pressing issues did the Apostle Paul turn in chapter 7 to the questions that the Corinthian church had sent to him, several questions that they were asking him. And uh, as Jesus had said, some matters are weightier than others in Matthew chapter 23. He talked about the weightier matters of the law. And so it would be of no benefit for the church to be concerned about being the way God wanted them to be on the outside in appearance and actions if they were not wholly on the inside first in the attitude of their heart. Amen? So the important thing is from the inside out. Everybody say inside out. So it's no benefit to be for people to say, hey, look, at they're acting like a Christian or they look like a Christian or they do things that Christians do. They go places that Christians do when your heart has not been changed by the power of God. Amen? So 
First Corinthians uh, chapter one and verse two, it says it, it uses the word in every place, letting us know that the principles that the Apostle Paul is teaching is applicable in all churches and in all cultures. So this passage in first Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to go through it verse by verse uh, because it seems like there's two different things being addressed here. The first one is the idea of someone wearing a hair covering or a veil when they go to worship or they go to church. And then the other issue has to do with a man's hair and a woman's hair, the difference between hair on a man and hair on a woman. And both of these issues are talked about here, and uh, we want to look uh, at uh, these two issues. But before we do, I want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, the symbolism of hair in First of all, in Scripture, uh, hair had a significant role in, we're just going to go quickly through these because we don't want to get too deep. We don't want anybody to choke on the meat here. Uh, but in Numbers chapter 5, the law of jealousies is mentioned. And that, what that was talking about is when a woman's hair was loosed, she lost her symbol of morality. Scholars believe the sentence for those guilty of adultery was to have their heads shaved and the woman would be a curse among her people. So shaving of the head was a sign of, of shame on a lady during a biblical times. And uh, a Jewish man that married a prisoner of war in Deuteronomy 21 had to shave her head first. This was a mark of shame for a woman, and so it was repudiating her old life as a Gentile. And scholars agree that once she became an Israelite, her hair would be allowed to grow. Numbers chapter 6 and other places in Scripture talks about the Nazarite vow, which has to do with hair. And there were three specific restrictions of someone who took a Nazarite vow. Anybody know of anybody who took a Nazarite vow? Somebody, Samson, right. And the three were they could not eat things made uh, with grapes, uh, they could not touch a corpse, and they could not cut their hair for a specified period of time. And uh, other than... Uh, Samson, Samuel, and maybe John the Baptist, a Nazarite would always cut their hair after a specified time, 30 days or 60 days or 90 days or 100 days were sometimes made. And the Nazarite vow resembled the sanctified life of a priest, except it was done spontaneously uh, by ordinary Israelites who weren't priests. The vow not only set a man apart, but also shamed him, perhaps signifying the shame that Jesus would endure. Now, everybody knows that Jesus was a Nazarite. Is that true? I, I threw a quick one at you. No, Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was a Nazarene. Okay, so uh, Nazarene means from Nazareth. Nazarite is the type of vow that, that was taken by certain men in the Old Testament. And so... Uh, and we know this because Jesus drank the fruit of the vine. He touched dead bodies. Yeah, he raised them from the dead. He had short hair. All the men in Christ's day wore their hair short. You say, but what about the pictures? Anybody seen the pictures of Jesus standing there like this with a shining face and long hair down the back? And look, Jesus had long hair. There is no evidence, no evidence in Scripture. In fact, historically, the evidence is quite the opposite. Why does Jesus have long hair in the pictures then? Well, number one, they weren't photographs. They were portraits. Number two, they weren't portraits uh, painted during his time. They were portraits painted during the time of Michelangelo and, and those kinds of individuals. So uh, they were reflecting what they were thinking rather than what was uh, 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 more than likely in uh, the time of Jesus, the way that the men wore their hair. In fact, the Talmud, which is the Jewish writings, states that the hairstyle was Julian, which means like Caesar, and that uh, the priests cut their hair once every 30 days. <clears throat> God's judgment, another point is that God's judgment on backsliding Israel were symbolized by the shaving of the head or the cutting off of the hair in a couple places, Isaiah chapter 3 and Jeremiah 7. Whenever Israel was backsliding, it was symbolized by the cutting off or the shaving of the head. And whenever the blessings were were back on Israel, it was represented by the hair growing again. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 7, thine hair is grown. So Israel, which was God's espoused or God's wife, is always symbolically presented as a woman. So the shame is the cutting of the hair, the letting the hair 
there grow is representative of blessing. So when you look through the Word of God from beginning to ending, it's very interesting that there's not a single verse in the entire Bible that presents a woman cutting her hair in a favorable fashion. Every single time it's seen as a sign of shame or a sign of judgment. Now, also, before we get into the verse by verse, I also want to look at a little bit of a historical significance of hair. Uh, and, uh, of course, um, we're here in 2010, and we can look back on the history of the last hundred years that have been a very tumultuous time of upheaval, huge things happening in the last century. I mean, it's been an amazing century. If you really look at it historically against all the other centuries before, the uh, um, just the explosion of population, the explosion of the ability to kill, the explosion of the ability to transport. Just think about it. People lived in history for some 6,000 years, 6,000 years, and they could go basically uh, maybe 20 miles in a day. Maybe 30 at the most. Unless they got a really fast horse. They may go 40, 40 miles in a day. But all of a sudden, in this last 100 years or so, locomotion has made it to where not only can we go 30 miles, now we can go 300 miles, now we can go 3,000 miles. Now men in rocket ships can go thousands and thousands of miles in a single day. And that's just one area. What about the ability to kill? For years and years and years, thousands and thousands of years, one person could kill one person in hand-to-hand combat. And then all of a sudden, the invention of the firearm and then explosives and bombs. In the last 100 years, it's been an amazing time of transition and change, which gives lots of people uh, a very clear sense that it's a sign of the times that things are about to wrap up. And, and, the, and the advancement of science, the, the advancement of all of these areas in the world in the last 100 years has been very significant. But you also notice that there have been some historical changes associated with hair in the last 100 years. And uh, 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 I want to just investigate some of these associations of hair in human history. And uh, we can find, if you study it, if you study it out, that there was no issue at all for the first 5,900 years of recorded history. During that time, 5,900 years of recorded history, it was common practice that a man's hair was short and women let their hair grow. Man wore his hair short and a woman let her hair grow. Now, the widespread practice of women cutting their hair began in the United States during the Roaring Twenties, the 1920s. And uh, a decade that was defined by a spirit of partying and materialism and rebellion. The world had survived the First World War and uh, uh, gone through it without paying a great price. But during the 1920s, there was no national issue across the U.S. uh, that got the attention like the subject of bobbed hair. I remember when I was in in school studying uh, English, I was an English major, and I got my degree in English, and uh, there was uh, actually a story, I believe it was written by, um, oh man, I can't remember the name of the author, I apologize, but it was entitled Bernice Bobs Her Hair. And it was written in the 1920s, and it was about the issue of social change that was happening associated with hair. And here's a, a couple uh, excerpts from articles. This is from the Saturday Evening Post in 1925, June 27. It says, There hasn't been a newspaper printed for the last two years that hasn't carried some sort of little story about women's hair. It used to be a woman's crowning glory, but now it's just hair. And then in Ladies Home Journal, March 1927, it says, The most radical change in the costume of women in our time has been the change in hairstyles. Hair really is the crowning glory of a woman. Her hair still remains the most telling item of her appearance. And now short hair is considered chic. It's also the symbol of the freedom of women. 
And check this out. The number of hairdressing shops quadrupled in four years in the 1920s. And some department stores and hospitals discharged all their female employees that bobbed their hair. Many men divorced their wives during this time for, for this issue. And uh, in Missouri court in 1926 awarded custody of three children to private homes with Christian influences because their mother bobbed her hair. This is just the way society has changed and, and, and the way that culture was during that time. And so, you know, the prominent case when I was uh, coming out of high school was the O.J. Simpson case. It was the big deal. Anybody remember that? You guys living in L.A.? Well, that's what hair was the O.J. Simpson case of, uh, of the 1920s. And uh, then again, we see in the 60s, the 1960s, uh, there was a great period of what was called the Great Rebellion with rioting and drug use, the hippie culture, unisex clothing, Eastern religion, atheism, rock and roll music, and free sex. I wonder if it's a coincidence that during this time, Long hairstyles for men entered our culture right during this same time of rebellion. Uh, this hair revolution was started by the Beatles in the spring of 1964. And there was one person that estimated that uh, uh, during this time, barbershops were forced to close at the rate of 100 a month nationwide as young men displayed their rebellion against the establishment through shaggy, disheveled hair. And uh, so... It's worthy of note that nearly all subsequent rebellion in society has been identified with hairstyles, whether it's punk rock or skinheads. It's always identified with hairstyle and clothing is what defines these countercultural movements. And uh, so to claim that there's no association uh, between hair and these kinds of rebellions is, is silly to say that there's no association at all. But also I want to uh, kind of mention this is just for, for interest's sake, that there are also uh, spiritual significance of hair. Some of you may have noticed when we were reading this passage from chapter 11, as it was talking about a woman's long hair, it says, Therefore shall a woman have power on her head, verse 10, because of the angels. Power on her head because of the angels. What is meant by this idea of power on her head? Because of the angels. So it, it, it's kind of interesting. This is just a curiosity, nothing else. But uh, um, in, in uh, uh, New Agers and mystics believe that there is power in women's hair. Uh, mystics, um, people that operate in the dark side, if you would. And, and just to give you some examples here, the Encyclopedia of Superstition, Folklore, and Occult Sciences says, and I quote from them, women's hair is a most precious amulet and wards off a great many evils and diseases. This is what they believe. Uh, the power of magic, secrets, and mysteries, ancient and modern, page 74. Hair has always been considered strong magic. Witches casting an evil spell needed a piece of hair from their victim to make it work. And the Woman's Dictionary of Symbols and Sacred Objects, it says, Woman's hair carried heavy symbolic and spiritual significance in Oriental or Eastern religions. Uh, tantric sages proclaimed that the binding or unbinding of a woman's hair uh, could control cosmic powers of creation and destruction. Another psychic dictionary says hair has uh, psychical powers that act as protection from evil entities of the ethereal world. Cutting off the hair ha was done in a ritual to discontinue the protection. It is a symbol of strength. It contributes to one's personality. It's a mark of identification. To shave one's heads is to remove one's self-image so they can begin a new self-image. An encyclopedia on witches and witchcraft. A witch's magical power is bound in her hair. By shaking her hair in the wind, the power of a spell is doubled. Encyclopedia of Occultism and Parapsychology. Hair has an occult significance since ancient times. It has been regarded as a source of strength. The association of hair with sexual features of the body has given it remarkable force, and distinctions between male and female hair have emphasized sexual attraction. The unisex fashions of the permissive society and rock groups have tended to create sexual confusion and neurotic behavior. So these are just some interesting 
things that from the dark side there is this sense that there is power and um, authority and protection in a woman's hair. So even the evil side of the supernatural realm has this sense that there is power uh, associated with hair. Now all this is kind of interesting to look at and uh, enlightening, but it, but these facts mean nothing unless the Bible actually teaches this principle. This means nothing unless the Bible is clearly voicing this principle. So in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 16, we want to look at what the Bible says there about this. Verse number 1, it says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now Paul repeats this saying in other places in the New Testament. He teaches that each of us is to be an example for others to follow. The examples given in both cases are specific to Corinth, but the principles taught are cross-culture and for all time. But the Apostle Paul here is saying, Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. This should be our attitude as growing, thriving, developing Christians. Follow me as I follow after Jesus Christ. Verse number 2 says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. I want you to notice this carefully. The Apostle Paul says, I praise you, brothers, that you remember me in all things. Thank you for remembering me. Thank you for being kind to me. Thank you for praying for me. But that's not good enough, he says, also, and that you keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. The word ordinance means beliefs or traditions. And uh, Paul teaches things, uh, and uh, he is instructing people here to to keep the ordinances, and he's praising the Corinthian church that not only were they kind to him, but they also kept the teachings or the ordinances that he had. Verse number three. But I wouldn't. But I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So the Apostle Paul here. After he's uh, um, he's going to deal with something about a question about whether or not a woman should wear a veil when she worships, uh, but he usually in his epistles before he deals with an issue like that, he first talks about a, a, a grand eternal principle on which the conviction rests. It's not just my feeling or my opinion, but there's a reason behind why I believe this. And so he is uh, going to give teaching to the Corinthian women about their appearance, but he, first of all, has to show them why, what the meaning behind it is. And uh, uh, so the, 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 the overriding principle is the concept of submission, being in submission to godly authority and godly order. Godly authority and godly order. So the idea of being under authority is, uh, um, is for all time. And uh, our submission to Jesus Christ is based on that truth. Uh, and, and in God's economy, when someone is in authority and someone is in a subordinate role, that does not imply that one is inferior to the other. Submission does not imply inferiority. Just as Jesus was equal to the Father in His divinity, but submissive to the Father's will in His flesh. In His divine nature, He was equal, but in His flesh, He was submitted. Now, let me give you a little background here of what we're going into. The problem in the Corinthian church that we're going to look at is not that the Christian women were cutting their hair. That's not the issue here. That's not the question that was being addressed. Every Bible scholar emphatically states that most women in all cultures of Paul's day did not cut their hair. It was not a problem. The problem was that Christian women were no longer wearing their veils when they worshipped, and that's what their culture determined. Culturally, it was uh, expected that a woman would wear a veil 
when she worshipped. And so when they worshipped without the veil, they were identifying with the heathen priestesses in the local temples and uh, who offered their worship bareheaded with disheveled hair. And so they were being associated with this practice. And uh, that's why Paul tells them in the same epistle, all things are lawful, but they're not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but they don't all edify. So uh, uh, they were being associated with this because of this. So uh, let's look at verse number four. Verse number four says, Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. Literally what it's saying is, a man is not to worship wearing something down over his head. Example, a veil. This would not be relevant to Paul's discussion of veils for women, except that he wants to show them that the more important principle here is the principle of headship. A man does not wear a covering which can be seen because his head, Jesus Christ, is also invisible. Verse number 5, chapter 11, verse 5, it says, But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for that is even all as one as if she were shaven. So on the other hand, a woman is not to worship without a veil in this culture, not necessarily because it invalidates her prayer, but because it dishonors her head, which is her husband or her father in, uh, in this order of creation in their culture. The woman is to wear a covering which can be seen because her head, the man, is also visible or seen. If she refuses to wear a veil, Paul says that she might as well shave her head identifying her with the Corinthian slave women and adulteresses because she is already uh, because she's already bringing shame to her husband it says it's all one as if she were shaven verse number 6 for if the woman be not covered let her also be shorn but if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven let her be covered. <clears throat> Again, Paul emphasizes that if a woman is going to refuse the authority and refuse to wear a veil in this culture, she might as well shame herself by cutting her hair. He states, if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn, which means cut hair, or shaven, we know what shaved means, let her be covered. Scholars agree that these women would not think of cutting their hair. That was not the issue Paul has made his point. Rebellion against this is still rebellion. If you rebel against the rules of the church in this culture to not wear a veil, then uh, uh, the rebellion is still rebellion, even though it's minor. Verse number 6, again, it says, uh, If it be a shame uh, for a woman to be shorn or shaven, uh, and people have said, is it... it the word shame here, that's, that's not the same as sin, is it? The word shame comes from the Greek word iaskron, which refers to something that's a disgrace. It's the neuter form of aeskros, which is translated filthy. And uh, another, the, the Vines Expository Dictionary says the word shame is defined as that which is opposed to modesty or purity. So that's what the uh, <clears throat> passage is saying here in verse number 6. Now, we know the word shaven is self-explanatory. It means cut near the surface to make bare or smooth, like when uh, a guy gets his, his hair shaved. But what does the word shorn mean? The word shorn mean most scholars and translators see it as cut with shears or removed by cutting without specifying how much. It seems that the hair is shorn. If it's cut at all, it's, it's shorn. If it's cut to the scalp, it's shaven. Uh, but to be sure of this, we've got to go beyond this verse for, for, for further explanation here. Verse number 7. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. Once again, Paul stresses again that a man should not cover or veil his head when worshiping or at any other time since Christians pray without ceasing. 
since he is the image and the glory of God. But a woman, on the other hand, is the glory of the man. Proverbs 12 says this, A virtuous woman is a crown to her husband, but she this maketh... But she that maketh ashamed is as rottenness in his bones. So a man's covered head detracts from the headship of Christ, while a woman's uncovered head detracts from the headship of her husband or her father. But these, since, although these coverings of the veil are symbolic only, re, to reject the symbol is to reject the authority of the apostle in this example here. And it says in, again in verse 7, it says, for as much as he is the image and the glory of God, and the woman is the glory of man. The word glory comes from the Greek word doxa, which means that man in his redeemed state reflects the image of God. As a new creature in Christ, we reflect the image of God. And women, on the other hand, is the reflection of man. Man is the only creature that can stand in the presence of God uncovered because he's the only creature that's made in the image and likeness of God. The Bible says angels cover their faces. Women have the hair covering. Verse number 8, chapter 11. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. God gave, Paul reaches back to creation to show the Corinthians that God decreed this symbolism because of the order of creation and the distinction of genders man was created first then women was created woman was created for him their roles based on the order are complementary but they're different and this distinction needs to be understood by christians it has absolutely nothing to do with capability intelligence superiority or any of the other controversies that uh, have to do with uh, um, uh, women's movements and so forth. It only has to do with order of creation. And uh, so uh, this is what it's talking about here, the order of creation. Um, God gave man and woman certain unchangeable physical characteristics to distinguish them. You can tell a man and a woman uh, just by looking based on the physical characteristics God gave them. But he allowed them to possess one characteristic that they could change. Men and women can manipulate their hair. Men can grow their hair long. Women can cut their hair short. But by conforming to God's standard, they demonstrate their willingness to accept God's authority. Verse number 9. Hopefully you understand we're plowing through getting to the issue here. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. So God created woman as a helpmeet or a helper suitable for the man. Now, make sure you get this right because you don't want to get this wrong. This is not saying that a woman is inferior to a man. To say that God created a woman to be a helpmeet for a man. In fact, the word helper is used... To describe God more than anyone else in the Old Testament. He is our helper. He's our helper. He's our helper. It demonstrates his strength, his ability to take care of us and to meet needs. And so it's not an inferior or a demeaning term. So women, a, a woman was created because man needed her strength, not so that she could be his servant. Everybody understand that. There's a completion that happens. And uh, so uh, this is the God's order of creation. Verse number 10, it says, For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. We want to look at this and find out what biblical scholars say about this passage. So the larger principle, the larger principle is being applied here uh, because of her unique place in God's creation a submitted woman a woman that is in her rightful role in the order of creation has power on her head this word power which comes from the Greek word exousia means liberty of action or permission or authority and influence or power that's been delegated, jurisdiction. And it pictures the woman exercising her God-given right to guard her home, her husband, her children, and her church. 
Verse number 10, if a woman is willing to submit to her role for this cause, if a woman, that's what it says, for this cause shall a woman have power on her head because of the angels. And uh, one thing to get here, I don't know if you remember that uh, uh, when uh, the uh, centurion guard came to Jesus, the, the leader centurion came to Jesus and said, will you heal my servant? Some of you remember that story in, in the New Testament. Will you heal my servant? And Jesus said, yeah, I'll come to your house and heal him. And he says, uh, he says you don't have to. Just speak the word only. He said, because I'm a man under authority, saying to this man go, and he goeth. To this man come, and he cometh. And uh Jesus said, wow, you've got great faith. But the point is, it's very, very interesting. I, I, I love this, the way it's stated there in, in Scripture. Because he didn't say, I am a man with authority, saying to this man, go, and he goeth, this person come, and he cometh. He was saying, I am a man under authority, and since I'm in my rightful place in, in the order of the organization, I have been given authority. A person who does not submit to authority will have no authority. Understand. And that's why it says, For this cause ought a woman to have power, influence, authority, ability, because she's willing to recognize her position in the creation, the order of creation, and she can have authority or power with the angels because of this recognition of a position of authority. Uh, so if she's willing to submit to her role, she will have power on her head because of the angels. Now, uh, what does that mean, because of the angels? There's different viewpoints, but biblical scholarships uh, kind of emphasize these two. The first is holy angels. Um, the holy angels veil their faces before God, so... A godly woman also wears a veil. And the holy angel receives delegated power as they submit to God just like the godly woman. So these angels were present at creation and know the order of creation. So that, that's fancy language. Let me break it down to uh, something you can understand. <laughs> Praise God. The order of creation, angels understand that they're created beings and except for Lucifer and those that followed him, recognized their role was to be submitted to God. And because of that, they knew that they had authority. Everybody understand? So they had authority, delegated authority, because they recognized their position. And so the angels were also... They're at creation, and they know the order of creation, man and then woman. And then in, a, uh, uh, in, the, in the role in the home, the angels recognize that if a woman and a man, if you would, are submitted to God's authority, there's power and authority that's there for them. Some scholars believe that the angels, maybe it's referring to evil angels. The majority focus on this first one that I mentioned, but... The second one are the fallen angels are constantly looking for an opportunity to destroy. Rebellion opens the door to evil, but God's authority blocks their efforts. So these angels were also present at creation and know the order of creation. So the Apostle Paul is, is, is saying here, in essence, the angels understood the order of creation, they understood their power comes from being submitted to God. And they also understand that a woman's power and authority and a man's power and authority comes from being submitted to God. Submission is not a popular word, but it should be because it means to be under, but it also means to be on a mission. The word mission, to be sent, to have authority, to be an ambassador of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord. So, uh, so a godly woman's hair is the mark of her authority in the presence of God. And in the world of angels and demons, uh, there's also this recognition as well. Here's another interesting point. 
Lucifer, his main responsibility, he was called the covering angel. And so his responsibility was to guard the glory of God. And when he was cast out, he lost his covering. Another interesting thing is you've got three words here in this verse. Um, let's see. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. In this passage, there is the concept of the covering. There's the concept of angels and the concept of glory. The glory unto her, which comes up again. Her hair is a glory. And uh, these three things show up also again in the mercy seat. In the mercy seat in the Old Testament. The cherubims were on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And they were the angels that were assigned to guard the glory. And the glory of God dwelt between the cherubims on the mercy seat. And uh, so you had the angels. You had the glory of God and it was in the covering the angels the glory of God and the covering if the covering were ever removed from the ark the angels were removed with it and also the glory was removed with the removal of the covering so this glory uh, mercy and presence of God were removed leaving only the law and no more mercy when the covering was taken away so um, verse number 11 Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. I want you to notice here what Paul does. He inserts this verse to prevent anyone from falsely concluding that one sex is superior to the other. Saying, well, man came first and then women, so that means man is superior to women. But Paul put this verse in to say, hey, by the way, yeah, man was first and then woman, but you came from a woman. <laughs> so... It's not that one is above or superior to the other in the sight of God. Men and women are interdependent in their relationship to God. They're equal rights, but their roles are not the same. Their roles are not equivalent. While women originally came from man, ever since man, or ever since Every man since Adam has come from a woman, verse 12. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman. But all things of God. So both sexes come from God. Both genders come from God, deriving their value and uniqueness from submitting to him. In verse 13, Paul comes to the crux of the matter. And here we are, verse 13. He says, Judge in yourself, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Judge in yourself. So, after everything Paul has taught, the only logical conclusion is that it's not comely for a woman to worship if she is unwilling to submit to the authority of the apostle and the church leadership by wearing a veil. This is one of Paul's kind of a rhetorical question, you know, the answer is obvious. Kind of like when he said, is Christ divided or was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? It's not something for you to say, let me think about that, was I? No, the obvious answer to this rhetorical question is no. And then verse 14 says, doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. And this is the clincher of Paul's argument. It is not unreasonable for him to insist that men pray unveiled because nature teaches a similar lesson. Man's inbred sense or inbred instinct makes virtually every society look at long hair on a man as uncomely. It's just weird. You ever notice that? Whatever society it's from, the man's hair is traditionally short and it's uncomely for a man to have long hair you say what do you mean nature teaches it how does nature teach us how, how does nature teach us that this idea of being uncovered well here's a way that nature teaches when a man reaches the age of maturity all of a sudden the answer begins to stand out prominently nature is teaching us something you find very few bald women in the world. 
But you find when a man gets older, many of them experience some baldness, some genetic mechanism that makes men bald and women not. God clears off the head of a man as time goes on. Can I get an amen? Amen. Only sickness or some kind of problem is associated with the balding of women. But many men begin to bald as early as their early 20s and mid-20s. Nature's teaching is so plain that sometimes it escapes us. Nature is teaching us uh, that if a man has long hair, it is a shame uh, unto him. Verse 15. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given her for a covering. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given her for a covering. So it's not unreasonable for Paul to insist that women veil themselves because nature has already provided them with a natural covering, their long hair. And, and Paul can insist on this idea of submitting to this cultural expectation of a veil because nature has provided the permanent covering of the hair. So, verse 15, the word glory, it's given to her, it is a glory unto her. The word glory means a good opinion resulting in praise. Literally, it means God has a good opinion of her. It is glory Unto her. The word further expresses how the woman's submission in having long hair reflects God's glory. It reflects the glory of God. Verse number 14 and 15 again. Doth not nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a, a, a covering. So, Here's the uh, uh, kind of the final uh, question here, the point of the issue is how long is long hair? Because if it's a shame for a man to have long hair, then we need to find out what long means and make sure that we're not offending in that area. And uh, uh, what does long mean for a woman? Is there a certain length? Of hair, is it in inches? Is it is it in feet? Is it as far as uh, it goes on the body? But see, the, the deal is, is everybody's hair grows differently, right? Right. Somebody may never have cut their hair at any point, and it only goes so far. Other people can have hair way down, and they continue to cut it. So the question is, how long is long? This is this is what I want you to get here. This is the point I want you to get here. In verse number 14, that if a man have long hair, or if a woman have long hair, the, the phrase to have long hair, have long hair, comes from a single Greek word. If you look at this verse, in the original Greek, the word is coma, coma, K-O-M-A, or K-O-M-E. That's the English transliteration of how it would be spelled. It's translated... To have long hair. But what it literally means, the literal translation of the word coma means to let the hair grow. To let the hair grow. So in uh, verse number 14 it says that if a man let his hair grow, it is a shame unto him. But if a woman let her hair grow, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. So what in the in the King James Version, the English here is translated as long. It's not about a specific length. It's about whether the hair is being let grow or the hair is not being let grow. That's what the, the, the uh, uh, translation. Uh, and here are the authorities. Some of the uh, places where we got this principle from. Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, Thayer's Lexicon, Gingrich's Lexicon, Bowers Lexicon, Moulton and Milligan, Vocabulary of Greek New Testament, W.E. Vines Expository Dictionary. So it's it, all of these uh, different 
translations let us know that the word kome means to let the hair grow. It doesn't mean a specific mean it, length. It doesn't mean shoulder length or waist length. It means that if a man lets his hair grow, it's a shame. If a woman lets her hair grow, it is a glory to her. So the specific Length of the hair, shoulder, waist, knees, is not what determines long hair. It's the letting the hair grow that it, this verse is talking about that determines whether or not a person has the covering, the covering that's been given or not. So, man, hopefully you're not so distracted as I am by that little one over there that you can't get the point. Uh, but uh, the point is... where. And I'll just say this because this is the one point I want you to get. And I probably could have taken a lot of time. But let the hair grow. It's one word. It's translated in English. It's translated in English, have long hair. In the Greek it means kome, which means let the hair grow. Let the hair grow. That's all, all of these different uh, um, uh, trans, translators of from Greek to English say that this is what it means. So... So the verbs in these verses imply a condition which remains to be sent, which remains to be seen. Paul is saying that if a man continues to have short hair, meaning he regularly cuts it, he maintains his authority in the presence of God and is not shamed. But if a woman continues to have uncut hair, means continue to let it grow, it is a glory to her and she maintains her authority in the presence of God. So if you really look at the tense and mood of the verbs from the Greek, there's really no room for any debate on this. The condition of a man and woman's hair is a continuing and incomplete project. It must be maintained to be accepted by God. A man, a man maintains his relationship in this area by continuing to cut his hair. And a woman maintains it by continually not, by continually allowing it to grow. So... As we wrap this up, the question is, do Christian women have to wear a veil today? Because there are some people that believe that and teach that a Christian woman has to wear a veil. Not according to the teaching of the Apostle Paul. As he concludes his teaching on authority and the necessity of wearing a veil according to this culture, he reminds the woman that their long hair is their real covering. Anybody got that? It was given to her, the hair was given to her for a covering. The phrase for a covering is translated instead of a covering. Or in another translation it says to serve as a covering. So, uh, and another one says instead of a veil. This meaning uh, is, uh, once again I could give you all the different places where this uh, uh, translation of the passage comes from. So, in general, Christian women today do not need to wear a veil when they worship because the wearing of a veil was only a temporary localized custom. It wasn't something going back to creation. Old Testament women in general did not wear them. And the present practice of women wearing veils comes from Muslims, not from the Jews or from the early Christians. The original plan of God does not indicate that women were to wear head veils, although other concerns of dress are specified. The only time a veil is needed is when culture demands it of modest women. We then observe the practice not because it's necessary before God, but because we want to win uh, in that arena, the culture to God. Christian women today do not need to wear a veil, but Christian women today do need to have long hair or to let the hair grow because it demonstrates her acceptance of the God-given role and then there is uh, uh, power on her head because of the angels. It demonstrates her submission to her husband or her father. It brings permission, influence, and jurisdiction in the spirit realm, this power on the head. And the holy angels observe a woman's submission to God's authority. The Bible says it's a disgrace before God for it's a shame for a woman to shave or to shear or cut her hair. So, and, and then the Bible goes so far as to say nature or instinct teaches us these principles. And it maintains a definite line of distinction 
between the genders, and it is her glory. It's the glory, or God has a good opinion of her and reflects God's glory. And her submission is a type of the church's submission to Jesus Christ. All right, and then verse number 16, the last verse says, But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. When he says seem to be contentious, it means if somebody likes to fight or argue, that the churches are all doing this, so don't try anything else. So uh, uh, the scriptures, uh, every reputable translation of scripture reinforces this interpretation. One, like the New Living Translation says, this is the way it is in all of God's churches, so don't argue about it. So, uh, <clears throat> so this is kind of, the, kind of an overview or a look at this passage. And while Paul is addressing the question in that cultural context of whether or not they should wear a veil, he addresses the fact that we are showing submission to God and to his authority and understanding our role or our position and submitting to God by submitting to this principle, which in our culture is not a veil, but it goes back to the origin of nature, which is nature has taught that a woman's letting her hair grow is a glory unto her. A man letting his hair grow, grow is a shame. And so this is why we teach at Life Church that a man should keep, continue to cut his hair and a woman should let her hair grow because it's in the Word of God. It's requested by the Word of God. And we want to submit and surrender to God. We want to have God's power and authority and anointing upon our lives and upon our houses and upon our marriage. Amen. Praise the Lord. Everybody said praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Why don't we stand together? <clears throat> How many of you have already fasted this week for revival? Some of you have already fasted and some of you are going to tomorrow or the next day. We're going to believe God for an outpouring of His Spirit. We're going to believe that good things are going to happen on Sunday and lives are going to be transformed and lives are going to be changed forever. Amen? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I just want to see it. I'm excited about seeing it and I'm ready to see it. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Now, understand that these kinds of principles that we're teaching tonight, these are things that we address infrequently. Not frequently, infrequently, because uh, we're focused on what's important. We're focused on reaching the lost. We're focused on the inner man. But there are some principles in the Word of God that from time to time we need to look at so we can understand and stay on the same page. Why do we teach this? Why does this happen? Why do we see this? This is where it is from the Word of God. All right? Lord Jesus, we thank you today for your anointing and for your presence and for your power. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would bless us, dear God. We want your anointing and your favor upon us. We want to be submitted and surrendered to you as a church body, as leaders, Lord God. We want to be surrendered to you in the midst of a culture that's going completely the different direction, Lord God. We want your favor and blessing upon our life, Jesus. I love you, Lord God, with all my heart. I believe in you, Lord Jesus, and I believe believe your word is the authority for my life. I want to be surrendered to you, Lord God, and submitted to you, Jesus, and walk, Lord God, with your favor and blessing upon me. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And everybody said, Amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Shake hands with one another. Show the love of Jesus to one another. God bless.